keep your eyes open for that iconoclast who is, isn't just destructive, but is trying things out that are really different. Because ultimately, that can be very a, a precious commodity. When the MacArthur Fellows were studied, these are people who are considered creative, uh, most of them didn't fit in very well with school because they weren't doing exactly what their teachers and parents wanted them to do. So having some, give, give some slack to a child trying something, not doing it like everybody else. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Worwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Today, we have a very special episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And I will start by saying, when Matt and I started this podcast two years ago, we made a dream guest list. And one of the names at the top of that list was Dr. Howard Gardner. So we are ecstatic to welcome Dr. Howard Gardner for our first ever Fueling Creativity episode special. Dr. Gardner is the John H. and Elizabeth A. Hobbs Research Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is also an adjunct professor of psychology at Harvard University and senior director of Harvard Project Zero. Dr. Gardner has received numerous awards, including the MacArthur Prize Fellowship and a fellowship from the John S. Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. In 2020, he received the Distinguished Contributions to Research and Education Award, the premier honor from the American Educational Research Association. In recognition of his contributions to both academic theory and public policy, he has received honorary degrees from 31 colleges and universities, including institutions in Bulgaria, Canada, Chile, Greece, Ireland, Israel, Italy, South Korea, and Spain. I could go on and on. He is also the author of 30 books translated into 32 languages and several hundred articles. Dr. Gardner is best known for his theory of multiple intelligences, a critique of the notion that there exists but a single human intelligence that can be assessed by standard psychometric instruments. Since the middle 1990s, Gardner has directed The Good Project, a group of initiatives founded in collaboration with psychologists Mahali Chiksamahai and William Damon that promotes excellence, engagement, and ethics in education. In 2020, Gardner wrote his intellectual memoir, A Synthesizing Mind, which was published by MIT Press. Dr. Gardner, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate that the generous introduction. So we want to start with your perspective of creativity. Can you share your perspective on creativity with our audience and how has this view changed over your career? I don't think anybody would have been listening to this podcast if they weren't interested in creativity. And I've certainly been interested in it for many, many years. Um, in fact, dating back to my years as a graduate student, which was uh, over half a century ago. But I, I'm going to be somewhat iconoclastic because while we're all interested in creativity and we, we want to foster it, uh, first point I want to make is that creativity is really not very popular around the world. If you look at most of history, People who have tried to do things differently 
have been punished, maybe executed, uh, maybe hanged. If you go look, like, look at the world today, which is very authoritarian, doing something off beat out of the ordinary is uh, more likely to end, get you in jail and get you some kind of a prize. And even in uh, a supposedly democratic uh, country like ours, you know, there are large segments of the population which want to have stuff done just the way it was done before, which don't want to have experimentation going on in school. And if I haven't offended everybody, I would say that both the left and the right want certain kinds of creativity, but not others. So while I wouldn't say it's an endangered species, uh, this is not something where we should just have a hooray for creativity. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's get on with it. Uh, having said that, I also have a bias, and that is that when you want to understand something, you should look at the, the least controversial examples. And after I put forth my theory of multiple intelligences, which I think most listeners would have an intuition for, people said, well, what about creativity? So I said, well, if there's a bunch of intelligences, maybe there's a bunch of creativities too. I'm not sure that hypothesis was correct, but what I did in a book called Creating Minds is I studied people who everybody would agree, if they had any concept of creativity at all, would be creative. And this included Albert Einstein, the physicist, uh, Martha Graham, the dancer, Mohandas Gandhi, the political leader, and people where there was really no ambiguity. And the reason I studied that is because I said, if you want to understand ordinary creativity, what I would call little c creativity, it's good to start with an unambiguous example. So that's a kind of a, a long-winded introduction to my perspective, uh, but uh, please fire away. So let's talk about creating minds. What did you learn from these eminent creators and how can it be applied to the average person? The first thing I learned is that people can be creative in very different domains or sectors. And the fact that somebody is creative in one area doesn't at all mean that they're going to be creator creative in other areas. So, for example, Einstein was one of our great physicists, uh, was really an example of logical mathematical intelligence. Uh, he also loved to play the violin, but nobody listens to his recordings of the violin. He was a, an, an ordinary amateur, if you will. Pablo Picasso is a great visual artist, very, very good in uh, spatial thinking, but he was not a particularly good student. Um, he wrote plays, which nobody paid any attention to. So people tend to be creative in one or two domains, one or two areas, one or two media. And when we hold up somebody like Leonardo, and maybe the first thing to say is there's nobody else like Leonardo. Leonardo is probably unique in human history because Leonardo da Vinci was clearly good in the visual area and painting, and he was very good in understanding the body, understanding certain principles of nature. He was an adequate writer. I wouldn't say he was a great writer. We don't know much about how he was dealing with other people. But most people are creative in one or possibly two sectors or domains. And here we get to a, a really important facet of my view of creativity, is that people use creativity as this kind of a word that you can apply anywhere. But I only think it makes sense to talk about creativity if you say you're creative in a particular domain a particular medium, a particular thing that you work with. So let's take kids, a 10-year-old. The 10-year-old might be creative in uh, the poems that he or she writes. But that doesn't all say that 
the music will be any good, or that if you give a difficult math problem, that they'll figure out how to do it. So creativity is largely medium or domain specific. I did find that most of the people whom I studied, I mentioned seven creators of the modern era, were good in more than one intelligence, but only one of them, and this was the composer Igor Stravinsky, seemed to be good across the board. He, he wasn't Leonardo by any means, uh, but he was, he was good with language uh, and he knew several languages. He was trained to be a lawyer, so he clearly had some mathematical and logical ability. Most of his music for, was for dance, so that suggested a kind of bodily kinesthetic uh, intelligence. But most of the other creators whom I've studied, whom I know something about, were strong with one domain, one medium, and, and it really didn't matter how well they were in other areas. It didn't matter if Leonardo couldn't tie his shoe. It's not, not a, a major thing. Uh, the other thing I would say, we can't say anything is creative or not by itself. We have to say creativity has to be judged by individuals who know something about that domain, about that medium. So if somebody writes a new opera or somebody writes a poem or somebody comes up with a mathematical equation or a mathematical concept, what I think about that doesn't matter. It has to be judged by somebody who's knowledgeable. And this led to one of the most profound statements about creativity. You mentioned in the introduction, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a wonderful scholar who many people know because of his work on flow. Mihai said, we shouldn't ask, what is creativity? We should ask, where is it? Creativity is always the meaning of a particular product, creation, if you will, in some kind of a domain or area, so we might say a discipline, and it's how it's judged by knowledgeable people. I'll give an example which I think people will find interesting. Almost everybody knows about Freud, the great psychoanalyst. But if I ask my students 20 years ago about Freud, they say, oh, he's been disproved. And if you talk to a lot of therapists and say, well, we don't really believe Freud anymore. He was wrong about this and that. Just uh, today, we're talking in March of 2023, there's a big article in the New York Times about how Freud is now back in fashion again. And a lot of the things he said about Oedipal complex and about uh, sexuality and so on, people think is very true now. Now, Freud didn't change, but the judges, the people who make decisions change. And by the same token, Bach, everybody knows the composer Bach, Bach was ignored for two centuries. And then Felix Mendelssohn, who lived in the 19th century, so to speak, discovered Bach. And uh, ever since that, we think he's a great composer. And everybody who's listening to this knows that for many, in many sectors, we didn't recognize that women could be good mathematicians or good scientists or good painters or good musicians. And now we're discovering that when we look at work that was created in its time, we can say, my God, this is very good. And I'll give a concrete example. I listen to classical music all the time. And about two years ago, I heard somebody say, this person is really good. And I found nobody knew who this person is. Since then, she's become totally famous. Her name is Florence Price. She lived roughly from 1875 to 1950. She was a black from the South, came to Chicago, actually studied in Boston at the, uh, the New England Conservatory. And uh, people in Chicago knew who she was, but her pieces were never, were never performed by a major orchestra. And very poignantly, in the 1940s, when she was in her 60s, she wrote a letter to Serge Kruzevitsky, the great conductor 
of the Boston Symphony and said, I'm a composer. Nobody knows who I am. I'm a woman. I'm a black. That's two strikes against me. But I would love for you to listen to my music. Anyway, there's no, rec- there's no record that uh, Kusevitsky ever answered. He probably didn't. But now every orchestra is playing Florence Price's. The music isn't any different than when she wrote it in the 1920s. But the field that makes the, ju- makes the judgment says, this person is really good. And anybody who studies any domain knows there are all sorts of people who admired in the 18th century, 19th century. We, thought we don't find of any interest at all. Their work hasn't changed, but our tastes and what we value has changed. So I don't want to forget about students in classes because I imagine anybody who hasn't turned off the, <laughs> the podcast by now is saying, well, what does this, what does this mean for me? The first thing is if we talk about creativity with a small c, not the kind of giants I'm talking about, but sort of ordinary creativity, any child who lives in a society which isn't repressive, which isn't authoritarian, is going to try out new things. And uh, some things that the child tries out, the child will find neat. And sometimes parents or teachers or friends will find it neat too. Sometimes they'll be appalled, and we can't say who's right and who's wrong. We might call that the, the, the creativity of the ordinary six-year-old. However, once you get to be 10 in our society, it's very different. But 10-year-olds don't want to try new things, by and large. They want to do things the way other people do things. Um, we call that the literal, literal stage. They want to write like everybody else. They want to draw like everybody else. They want to sing like everybody else. They want to do math like everybody else. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's in the process of getting better at something. So their writing gets to be better. Their painting gets to be better. That That's the time when they can begin to do some experimenting. And that's what we call little or middle C creativity comes into, into fashion. There's a famous quotation from Picasso. He said, it took me four years to paint like Raphael, but it took me a lifetime to paint like a child. And what he meant was you have to overcome the steps that everybody has to go through to become a master of a medium before you can do something new. And the best way to think about that is every parent in the West puts their child's scribbles when they're three or four on the refrigerator. Those things aren't held in museums. My wife, Ellen Winner, who is an expert in this, and her student, Jen Drake, have actually studied young children who are very precocious in the arts. Precocious, however, doesn't mean that they become great artists. It means they master the medium more quickly than their peers. And this can be done. This is very new. That hasn't been published yet. It can be done in, in the area of abstract art as well as representation. So most people listening would say, well, what Howard means, and they'd be correct, is that whereas it takes most kids until they're seven or eight to be able to draw a tree or a person faithfully. There's some kids who can do it at two or three. We would call them precocious. But those kids don't become artists. They just become more like boring adults more quickly. And it seems to be rather similar with abstract art, though I don't want to try to present that before it's, it's been published. So you might say, well, what are the, what are the characteristics of the kids who do master a medium in the way that uh, that they need to to be proficient that eventually has gets them to do something that other people pay attention to um, that we other people call creativity with a middle C or even a higher C and one of the conclusions I came to in my book that you referred to 
creating minds is they need to have a tough personality. Because when you try to do something new, even in our society, which claims to honor creativity, you get knocked down. You might get flunked. <laughs> you might get kicked out of this, out of, out of art school. You know, we want things to be done in a certain way. And of the seven creators whom I studied in creating minds, six of them had nervous breakdowns or virtual nervous breakdowns before they kind of found that they were accepted because they were doing things which everybody else said doesn't make any sense. Um, I forget who the exception was. I think it may have been Stravinsky. I don't think he almost had a breakdown, but I don't remember for sure. It's, lo it's lonely to get to try to be a middle C or a big C creative. Um, it's fine to be little C, but that's going to disappear when you're eight or nine unless you're, you're really reinforced for doing it, and that would be unusual. Some of us, including myself, send our kids to progressive schools, and in progressive schools, creativity is often allowed more and honored more, but as somebody once joked, it also means the parents are hiring tutors so, so the kids will do well in their tests and so on. So it's, progressive education isn't the, an easy solution to everything, but it's it's a form of education which is more open to middle C creative than our um, common core schools where people are expected to follow a very tight curriculum. Just to kind of piggyback on something you had said earlier, the idea that creativity those that are creative are challenging the system. They can sometimes be outliers, a nuisance maybe to a field. But then at the same time, there's also a discussion about the fact that in order to be creative, it has to be recognized by established people within the domain. So it, it strikes me to a certain extent that as young children growing up to nurture their creative potential, they have to learn to navigate the system. They have to learn to navigate the players and interact with the audience they're designing for, perhaps before they go and make a, a, a wild change in the direction of that field. Is that, is that fair to say? I think it, it moves the discussion along in, in an important way. I do think, as you're saying, it's much easier if you sort of play by the rules. And there are probably some people who play by the rules very well for the 10,000 hours or whatever it needs to become really good at something and then, and then can manage to break away. One of the things I found in my study when I mentioned that people often had breakdowns, they needed some individual to support him. It didn't have to be a knowledgeable person. It had to be somebody who just believed in them because the more you go out on a limb, the more you're going to be, going to be ostracized. What you raise, I mean, if, if you were a student of mine, I would say this was a good subject for a thesis is to look at the, the difference between those individuals who kind of went through the rules and the and the processes the way everybody else did and then broke away, as opposed to those people who are kind of more of a pain in the butt uh, all, all along. I, I think you find I think you would find both trajectories. I don't think they've all been pain in the butt, but I don't think by any means that they've all been uh, good, obedient students. You're, what you said earlier reminded me of one of my attempts to be funny when I talked about creativity. I've said, you may not be discovered that you're creative in your lifetime, like Bach. It might be, it happens after you're dead. So the bad news is that you might not know that you're creative. But the good news is you can never know for sure that you're not creative because maybe after you die, people will <laughs> discover it. And, uh, you know, I, I had 15 minutes of fame when I critiqued the word of of, of intelligence and said it's multiple. And, you know, when I die, if there's anything 
yeah, in the paper it'll say multiple intelligences. But as, as you both know, I've gone on to do 20 or 30 things since then. I'm now completely obsessed with what it means to synthesize, what it means to have a synthesizing mind. I think what I'm doing is terribly original, but so far nobody else does. And so I have the choice of either quitting or going on with my work and hoping that somebody else will eventually discover it. Or I think what's the case that as long as I enjoy doing it, it doesn't hurt anybody else. I'm happy to continue. But uh, you both are in the academy. And you know, in the academy, in, in the university, you get a lot of reward if you're just a little bit different from other people. But you don't get much reward if you're exactly the same. And you certainly don't get much reward if you're way out on the limb unless you happen to get the Nobel Prize, then, then people say, oh, yes, well, you know, Darwin knew what he was doing. But, you know, Darwin was afraid to put his ideas forward for 30 years because he knew that the whole religious establishment and his wife would reject him. So Darwin just kept notebooks. Um, if he died before Wallace wrote to him and said, hey, I think evolution is the explanation, we might not even know who Darwin is today. But there is something ironic with that. You know, universities are charged for generating new knowledge in society. But, you know, it, it does strike me that they are, as an institution, very fixed on the process to how one engages in the creative process and then how one is recognized as well. So I'm just out of curiosity, how, how have you navigated that? Because you, you're also within academia as well. And the reason why I'm saying this, I was really fascinated with your story of how many times you've kind of, it was almost as if you were trying to find your home discipline and you couldn't quite find a discipline where you felt was your home. Well, I love this question and we have to be careful not to have too much just plain academic talk, but I think you're absolutely right. The rewards in the academy by and large for people who want to get a permanent position and want to get tenure are for people who move the dial a bit, but, but not too much. I was extremely lucky because I didn't have an academic job and most people did not know what to make of me. But two things happened. One, I was lucky to get the MacArthur Fellowship, which was kind of a seal of approval um, because you're supposed to give it to people who are creative. But the other thing I had to do, her name was Patricia Graham, and she had faith in me. And she wouldn't like me to put it this way, but she basically manipulated the system so that I would be, I would get a position. But, uh, and you can take this for what it's worth. Just this morning on my walk, I was thinking about the most original people whom I've recommended for tenure at my school. My colleagues have not, have not accepted them and their names would be known to some of you. And I think it's a threat. I think people are threatened by somebody who isn't just a little bit different from everybody else, but is really going out on a limb. And all the people I have in mind, they don't need a tenure at Harvard. They're doing perfectly well. I think it's a it's a very bad sign that uh, my colleagues didn't accept it. But you know, they would have their own reasons, and I don't want to I, I don't want to pull the rug out from under them. But yes, um, what Mike Csikszentmihalyi and I would say is there's much more reward in the in our society and in our universities for middle C creative rather than for big C creative. And because, I mean, you probably know, listeners may, may know about Thomas Kuhn, who I think wrote the most important book about how knowledge changes, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It's now 60 years old. And what he claimed is most science, most of the time, uses a paradigm, and people work within that paradigm. And every once in a while, a Darwin comes along or an Einstein comes along, and 
you could name Freud or Piaget, and they they explode the paradigm. And then suddenly everybody's kind of out of business if they were in that paradigm. And that's that that's that's kind of threatening. But I don't want to get too far from kids because I I think that the the message I would give to parents and to teachers is to provide a certain degree of protection for the young person who is courageous enough to try to do something differently, as long as it's not injurious to himself or to other people. So, you know, the, the, you know if you want to get, get kids to get a high score on the advanced placement test on essays, you tell them exactly how to write an essay. And, you know, that's fine for the high school. But if somebody's writing an essay and does it in a different way, you should try to understand why they're doing it that way and uh, acknowledge it and recognize it. Similarly, in math, maybe there's a best way to do uh, a simultaneous equation, whatever that is. <laughs> I haven't done that for 70 years. But if somebody can do it another way and it gets the result, that's great. Don't be overjudgmental. Give give the, the the young person some slack. I write. I have five grandchildren. I write poetry for them in their birthdays, and sometimes they begin to write poetry back. And of course, it doesn't always rhyme. But to my mind, that's not material. If they're enjoying reading and playing with words, that's that's great. You've spoken so much about nurturing that creative potential. So my curiosity is: Do you think that? we can actually teach creativity. And do you think there's any benefit in teaching kids to be more creative? Or do you think it's just about identifying that creative potential? I think we're much better at teaching people how not to be creative than to be creative. Mm. But um, no, I mean, I think what adults model is terribly important. Model what they, you know, what they, how they behave and what they pay attention to. Uh, Matt knows because he, he's read my autobiography. I had very, I had teachers who were quite creative themselves, and they and they set a good role model for me, and it made me more adventurous than if I had people who just really followed the beaten path. But let me give it an anecdote because I think it's very revealing. When I was studying intellect cognitive development, that's what I studied as a graduate student sixty years ago. Everybody was studying what it meant to develop to be a scientist, and I was very interested in the arts. My background is mostly in music, and so I said, well. What happens if you think about development not toward becoming a scientist, but toward becoming an artist? You know, Leonardo, Mozart, Bach, and so on. And this was a very iconoclastic view, and most of my teachers didn't take it seriously. So I decided to write about how do people recognize style in works of art? Because I think if if you don't, if you can't recognize the style, you're pretty limited in your in your appreciation of the arts. So I wrote an article for a journal. And it was called Style Perception and Development in Children. And it was rejected by Return Mail, um, which means that Guy didn't even send it up. I remember his name, Clifford Morgan. Uh, he wrote to me right away. He said, uh, we're, not we're not accepting this article. And I was sort of disappointed. Six months later, somebody did the same study, didn't copy me. His name was Richard Walk. And it was, it was, it was published in the journal. And I wrote to the editor and I said, how I probably used why the something. <laughs> Did you publish this article and not mine? And he went back an honest answer and said, we do concept formation. We don't do artistic styles. So if I'd known to use the buzzword concept formation, I could have slipped it in. And probably if my advisor had said, Howard, you know, don't use the word art because they've never published things. So it's, it's a question of, you know, sticking to your guns, but having people who, who encourage you. We call those mentors. And then I write a lot about anti-mentors, tormentors, people who you don't want to be like. 
Um, but my best advice for young people is to be a fragmenter, to take one aspect from one person, a second aspect from a second person, and so on. Don't be too dependent on one role model. I think that's a that's a mistake. And in a relatively democratic society like we still have, you can do that. In more authoritarian societies, if you have one mentor, nobody else wants to touch you. You're just have to go, if you're saying a classical German thing, not Germany today, but Germany 19th century. If you work with Herr Professor X, you could not look to with anybody else. So having a, a bunch of different role models, a bunch of different mentors, and you said that your your children go to progressive schools, if they have a number of different role models there who experiment in different ways, that's ideal. And when somebody says that kids go to Montessori schools or even Reggio Emilia schools or to Steiner schools, my question always, is the school doctrinaire or is the school flexible? Whenever you become, even Freudian, whenever you become too much going down one path, that's the enemy of creativity. So I, I actually want to build on that you know, because I think some of the things that you're talking about, I can't help but say, is is this the the outcome of a synthesizing mind? It strikes me that there's so much that we have to master in today's world. There's so much information. There's so much depth of knowledge that we have to acquire in order to really produce creativity within our particular domain. But the synthesizing mind, which comes from the the, the book Five Minds of the Future, which I will do a shout out to my boss. He actually bought that book for all of us when I first started working at the Center for 21st Century Skills. It, it's kind of really hard in today's world to be to really master so many disciplines, given the fact that we have so much knowledge. So how do we do that? How can we develop a synthesizing mind? And the reason why I'm asking you that is because I interact with so many people that that seem to be interested and passionate about so many different topics. And we actually touched on this in an episode with Sally Reese when she was talking about the idea of multiple potentialities. And typically what we do, either through the system or us as parents, we kind of start, I don't know if it's to do with time, but we, we, we end up kind of supporting one particular discipline or one particular talent more than others. And when I'm listening and thinking about the synthesizing mind, we've got to try and keep the door open to everything. How, how do we do that when there's so many things that we have to master? Well, you're raising a very profound question, and it's one that I can't pretend to have a, a satisfying answer to. And in fact, I, I wrestle with it all the time. The first thing that, that I say may surprise you, I don't think the synthesizing mind is for everybody. I think that many people are much better off working in one or two areas that they have a penchant for and that they can acquire skills in. And, you know, going as far as they can in that way. As you know, um, I actually hated my own graduate school program because it was trying to make me into an expert in one discipline, and that wasn't my penchant. But you know, the other people who were with me, many of them did quite well at pursuing the one thing that they liked and they were good at. I, you know, you could say I have a synthesizing mind. You could also say I have a garbage can kind of mind. <laughs> I've always picked up stuff everywhere. And here's the crucial thing. I like to mobilize it to answer questions I have. So maybe if, you know, if I were running a school, now I wouldn't say we should help everybody develop a synthesizing mind. I'd probably say we should have an eye out for those kids who seem to attract gather information rather easily from different spheres and like to put it together in new ways, just as we ought to keep an eye for those creative kids 
who are going down one rabbit hole but not doing it in the way other people are. I don't think that there's a need to make everybody creative or everybody a synthesizer. Though when I, when I wrote about that years ago, I said, there's no real line between creativity and synthesizing. Let's take the, the field of economics. Economics has had textbooks for 100 years. But when Paul Samuelson wrote a textbook 50 years ago, that changed everything. And similarly, you know, after Beethoven, everybody tried to write symphonies like Beethoven, but you didn't have to do that. You could write it in, in other kinds of ways. What I worry about, and I think everybody who's listening is worrying about this, is what sorts of things are, is chat GPT going to be able to do so much better than the rest of us that it's kind of pointless even to try to develop those skills? And I can say without ever having gone to chat GPT, but having read a lot about it, that I'm sure that any issue that I give to chat GPT, it would do a better synthesis than 95% of people. Because that's what it is. It's a giant synthesizing machine. And how about can we make it creative? Well, we could probably write an instruction to say, you know, take this Mozart symphony and make it 15% different. And it probably did a better job than anybody else. So I think the crisis is not so much there's way too much to learn, but rather what's the distinctive human things that we want to cultivate and that maybe we don't want AI to do. I mean, I'm not interested in AI making ethical decisions anymore than I am in thinking that I want to have apes make ethical decisions. I think that's a human challenge. Are we doing it well? Not often, no. But ultimately, I don't think we want an algorithm to make those kinds of decisions. I think human beings have to do it. So I'm sorry I don't have a, a good answer to your question, but I'm sharing what I think, which is the best I can do. So how do you see the role of artificial intelligence playing in having a, um, a creative mind? I guess the answer is who's boss, even though I, mean, I, I don't think I'm ever going to use these programs. I think people should use them, but they should critique them and see what it is that isn't done well um, and maybe train it to do well. Train just means gives it more examples, but maybe... And there's a lot of writing about this now. There are certain things which it shouldn't be asked to do. Like I wouldn't want legal decisions to be made simply by an algorithm because the, the algorithm can't understand the human stakes that are, that are, that are involved. Yuval Harari, who is one of our best thinkers, you know, says this is as fundamental as the invention of language. I mean, when did language get invented? Probably 50,000 years ago. Uh, we can't imagine a society without language. And you know, think thousands of languages around, but this is this is every bit as profound, and so I think we need to try to understand it, work with it, but decide what is it that we don't want to allocate. The scholar who had the most influence on my professional career was a psychologist named Jerome Bruner. People of a certain age would know Bruner, and he actually got me out of history, which is what I was studying into psychology because he created a curriculum for fifth graders, and the curriculum still exists. The name of it is dated, as everything from that era was dated, but the ideas are very profound. The curriculum, the fifth grade social studies curriculum, was called Man, a Course of Study. Of course, now we wouldn't say man, even though generically, of course, it didn't mean just men. But the, the Bruder curriculum, Man, a Course of Study, which my children had at Progressive Shady Hill School, in um, Cambridge was what makes human beings human? How do they get that way? 
And how can they be made more so? And even though I don't have the Ten Commandments above my desk, and I don't have Bruner's questions, I don't even think about them that often, but essentially it's underwritten everything that I've done and thought about. What does it mean to be human? How do we get that way? How can we make more so? And I think chat GPD doesn't destroy it. It just actually magnifies the importance of those questions. I mean, Harari says maybe human beings are at an end. That would mean either we blow ourselves up nuclearly or we, we, we destroy our environment so that we can't breathe anymore, or we create instruments like chat GPT, which are so much smarter than we are that they run the universe. That's been the job of science fiction until very recently, but uh, a lot of what's happening now is is like science fiction. One of my colleagues wrote to ChatGPT and said, do the theory of multiple intelligences as Shakespeare would. <laughs> and then Shinri said to me, oh yes, I just say the word saith every once in a while. That's an I-E-T-H, but I'm sure it did a better job than that. So keeping on the topic of ChatGPT, I'm wondering if you have an opinion around this idea of, of what is originality in, in the world of, of generative AI. Originality is so much part of how scholars typically uh, evaluate and, and engage in discourse around creativity. So what's your take on originality? Can machines be original? That's a great question. And it allows me to come back to something I should have developed earlier. What if, what if four and five year olds do? It's all creative for them. And even if every other four or five year old in the world has figured out conservation of liquid, <laughs> meaning that the, the shape of the container doesn't determine <laughs> the quantity in it, for a five year old, it's a genuine discovery. And I play the piano every day. It's one of my three forms of therapy. And I know that I don't play as well as 900,000 pianists, but I don't care. If I discover something new, even today I discover something new, or I play something in a way I haven't been played before, and it works for me, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's done its job for me. And I don't think we're going to stop having people play uh, musical recitals or dance just because we can create apparatuses that do it better. People haven't stopped playing chess or go just because the machine can do it better. But then the question is, who are we doing it for? We're doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for our friends, and occasionally, this is where Thomas Kuhn's paradigm shift comes in, occasionally somebody or something will do something, maybe even ChatGPT will do something so different that it really changes the way we think about everything. But then, this is where Csikszentmihalyi's field judges come in. Somebody has to notice it. If nobody noticed Darwin or nobody noticed Gregor Mendel, who actually sent his stuff in genetics to Darwin, but Darwin never read it, then it, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been discovered. So maybe part of what you're helping us understand, Matt, we're going to have dialogue now, not just between humans present and past and future, but between humans and other entities which create things which before only human beings could have. And we have to decide, does our species just hang up its, uh, its stirrups or do we carve out things which are meaningful for us, meaningful for us, even if they don't pass the, uh, the the journal reviewers because it's been done better by Chat Chat GPT? And that's something you know we have to think of with reference to children, whether it's our you know our our families or the young people who we're teachers for, whether you're doing it in, in elementary school or you're doing it at, at the university. But it's always a new discovery for 
it's a child, and that has to be honored. But we may have discoveries now, which before we wouldn't have thought about anybody except human beings doing, and now that's just wrong. As for the the question about uh, people's rights, I think it's very unfortunate if somebody creates uh, one of these tokens, which takes your artwork and does it as well as or better than you. But I don't think we can spend our time in law courts uh, fighting this out. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a losing battle, um, and I don't see how governments are going to be able to control it either. I mean, you know, the Chinese government tries to control all of this, and we're debating whether to do it or not. But you know, there are always hackers <laughs> who can uh, do it, and even the government can't can't put everybody in jail. Okay. So the stakes the stakes are very high, and you know, we need to prepare kids for this, but we need to defend their childhood as well. We can't we can't rob it. And that's where I think the good interest in creativity for kids comes. Uh, I hope my opening statement didn't tell people that you shouldn't encourage kids to be adventurous. But what I did want to say is this is not something that's always been honored or respected. And at the end of the day, if you want to move toward a middle C or a big C created, then you have to do something which other people value, not just the, the parent who puts the painting on the refrigerator, nice as that is, or our refrigerator is filled with that stuff. And, and I think just to, to kind of close this section, that was my takeaway is that, you know, there are different environments. We engage in creativity in different ways and for different purposes. And just listening to you talking about the fact that you try and play the piano every day and, and knowing that the piano has always been part of your life from, from when you were a child into adulthood – we want to probably cultivate and facilitate lots of different types of creativity. And so some of this mini C, little C creativity can continue into our childhood. And then there's going to be other environments to where we will strive and pursue, you know, pro C and, and middle C type creativity because we're actually trying to produce an outcome that's valued for our field. But both types of creativity are important. And we want to probably within the school system, make sure we keep our eye on cultivating lots of different types of creativity. It's not always just driven for this kind of one economic viewpoint only. Including one which I would not have thought of, except I read a really interesting, important article by a fellow developmental psychologist, Alison Gopnik. Um, and that is caregiving and caretaking it is something that's been almost ignored in our politics and our economics, especially in our neoliberal world, and yet more women than men, but throughout history, caregiving and caretaking has been really important, especially for young people and for old people like me. And there's enormous room for creativity there, not honored as such, because it's been seen as being women's work or stuff that uh, you can hire somebody to do. But anybody who's a parent or a child with aging parents, there's Tremendous opportunity for creativity and how we deal with people who are vulnerable. And even though there may be some societies where we get robots to do it, it's, it's, I think it's deeply anti-human for robots to be given these care jobs. So that's the whole area which has been largely ignored because of too many, too many of men like me are busy deciding what to study and what to understand. And speaking of that, I want to talk a little bit more before we go on about the five minds for the future. And I'm curious if you see any other mindsets 
that you think are required for the future, given, you know, especially the last five years with the pandemic and artificial intelligence moving and everything happening in our political landscape? Is there any other minds for the future that you would add in 2023? Well, let me me just say a word about the five minds, because this is an idea which I wrote about years ago, and three of them are, are largely cognitive. There's the disciplined mind, which is mastering the, the areas that are valued in your society. Then there's a synthesizing mind, which brings stuff together from different areas and hopefully in a useful way. And then the subject today, the creating mind that goes on and tries to push the envelope into ways that are new. And uh, even if you fail, it's fun to try. But then I talk about two other kinds of minds, and that's really what my colleagues and I have been focused on for the last 25 years. There's the uh, the respectful mind and the ethical mind. And the respectful mind is something that we know from the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. It's how do you treat people who are around you. And we were talking about caregiving before. That's uh, that's certainly an aspect to respect, especially those who are not able anymore. We respect our infants because they can't take care of themselves. We respect our old people because they aren't able to take care of themselves, if we're good. Uh, if we're not good, we disrespect, we diss them. Ethical is what we've really tried to study, and ethics is how do you deal with really complicated questions, questions where there isn't any obvious right answer. Matt seems to specialize in those questions, like what do we do when uh, you can have a uh, some kind of an algorithm that does your work better than you? It's, that's, a, that's an ethical question. We can't just look it up. I guess the only uh, thing I would add, based on what we were talking about earlier, is we haven't had to worry very much about the post-Anthropocene world until now. Anthropocene is a $24 word for this has been the era for human beings in the last uh, 1,500,000 years, and we've kind of done our job to ruin the environment in the last several hundred years. But the question is, what does it mean for our species when the post-Anthropocene is over? Um, I hope my grandchildren don't have to deal with that directly, but I think the species does. Uh, something I just read yesterday, it's not the case that chat GPT is politically neutral. Chat GPT happens to be biased toward liberal uh, progressive values because more people who de- develop these programs which feed information are reading the, uh, let's put it this way, the New York Times rather than the Wall Street Journal. And so people are creating chat GPTs, which are more uh, conservative, if you will. And of course, those are going to put things together in some way. So some of the battles we're having now in the world, in Ukraine, in our own country, that could occur among different GPT systems. And indeed, if I read more science fiction, I could say, oh, yes, this is what uh, Isaac Asimov wrote about 100 years ago, but I can't give you any reference on that. Howard, you have been watching the changes happening in our education system for almost 60 years. So I would love to know from you, what leaves you hopeful and what makes you worried about the future? And I know you mentioned several times you have grandchildren. So what leaves you hopeful and excited for them and what leaves you worried? Well, I'm going to give you an answer that you don't want, but it'll be useful, I hope. Wendy Fishman and I have written a big book about college. It's called The Real World of College. And we were asked, would you like to edit a journal about new ideas in in higher education? And I said, if you want to know about new ideas in higher education in the United States, I had no interest whatsoever because I could write the whole journal myself. I know all the ideas. 
But if you want a book on higher education around the world, we're going to do that. And that's exactly what we're doing now. I think the worst thing about the United States is we look at ourselves in the mirror and we argue with ourselves without learning from things. Countries as different as Singapore and Finland. We have tremendous amount to learn from both, but we look too much in the mirror. And part of the reason is because unlike those two countries, education here is local and politicized. So we have fighting now about whether you should read a Toni Morrison book. I mean, for Christ's sake, we fight about that. But when you have a, a reasonable national educational approach, as they do in Scandinavia, as they do in Singapore, then you can you can get rid of these silly kinds of battles and you can focus on developing the minds and the spirits of, of, of our children. So what gives me hope is there are interesting things happening around the world. What makes me despair is that we, we look at ourselves in the mirror because maybe at one time we had the best educational system. I can't go back to Horace Mann in 1850 who invented public schools. I can't go back to our colleges in the GI Bill in the late 40s where we sent more people to college and universities than ever before. We're, we're rearranging deck chairs on our educational deck. Does this mean that individuals don't get good education? Of course not. We have great schools. But the country as a whole is terrible because we don't take it seriously enough. We don't take educators seriously enough. When people in Finland become teachers, they become teachers for life because they're, te- they're dealt with as professionals. And here, half of our teachers leave within five years. And I bet you after the pandemic, it's even going to be worse. So what gives me hope is it's not just the United States. What gives me, what makes me despair is that we spend too much time fighting old battles and looking in the mirror. So Howard, we ask all of our guests this question, what three tips do you have when it comes to promoting creativity in education? First of all, every young child, unless they're beaten or are in a very autocratic system, loves to explore, tries things out, uh, gets pleasure out of it. And when a child is young, I think the job of the parent is to encourage the child to be worried if the child is obsessively repeating. Um, that's not good. Or if the child flits from one thing to another without spending a month of time, any amount of time. But as long as the child is engaged and trying things out, if the child is two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think that's great. Ultimately, however, to use a Yiddish word, potchking around is not enough to get you through life. You know, at a certain point, you need to develop some discipline, some skills, in the sense that something can be better than something else, and there are reasons for it. And so what I call the development of the disciplined mind is something that uh, uh, any parent and educator needs to be concerned about when the child finishes the first years of life and is in elementary, middle grades, and so on. But as we said earlier, keep your eyes open for that iconoclast who is isn't just destructive, but is trying things out that are really different, because ultimately that can be very a, a precious commodity. When the MacArthur Fellows were studied, these are people who are considered creative, uh, most of them didn't fit in very well with school, because they weren't doing exactly what their teachers and parents wanted them to do. So having some, give, give some slack to the child trying something, not doing it like everybody else. And then I guess the final bit of advice I would say is that it's probably more important that every human being find some things that they enjoy doing 
and uh, that they feel is satisfying for them and they can get better at it as long as they're not harming anybody else. I, I don't play the piano late at night because I don't want to disturb the, uh, the, the neighbors, but uh, having something that you're passionate about and is meaningful to you is very important. It doesn't need to be the arts. I happen to think in the arts. It can be sports, though that gets harder and you can be old as you get older, but it can be caregiving. I mean, you know, there are people who are older than I am who do wonderful jobs of playing with young or gardening or taking care of somebody who has, you know, has lost their mental faculties. And uh, it doesn't matter whether it's big C creative. It matters, it matters that uh, it's uh, doing something that, that has some meaning for you and hopefully for other people. Uh, what William Damon, who was the other person I work with, along with me, I check my says, we need purpose in life. And purpose is something that's meaningful to us, but it should have meanings for other people as well. So those are three words of advice from a, a man who's about to turn 80. Maybe they're not going to increase the creativity quotient, but if they help have more meaningful lives, I think that, that that would be worthwhile. Well, Howard, thank you so much for your time today. We are so appreciative of your insights and your scholarship and your breadth and depth of knowledge in so many domains. And we look forward to seeing where you continue your work. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us on this special episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And knowing when we're going to be releasing this, we wish every educator a happy summer and hopefully a summer full of creativity wherever your creativity interests reside. My name is Dr. Matthew Werwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This episode was produced by Creativity and Education in partnership with WarwoodClassroom.com. Our editor is Sina Yousafzadeh.